Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Behind us, we have uh, migrants who are asylum seekers, who some of whom have been here for six days, seven days. Some of them are uh, just have just arrived last night, and they are in uh, squalid conditions. Don't have access to food or to water. The Trump-era Title 42 policy has come to an end, but the Biden administration's instituted what critics say is a new asylum ban. We'll go to San Diego to look at what's happening at the border. This comes as a group of House Democrats are urging the Biden administration to lift sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba, which they say are driving people to leave their homes out of economic desperation. Then we look at the political crisis in Pakistan. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been freed on bail three days after his arrest sparked mass protests. And we go to Belgrade, Serbia, which is reeling after 17 people were shot dead in two massacres last week, including Serbia's first ever school shooting, where the shooter was a 13-year-old. The government has proposed very stringent measures to, as the president put it, to disarm Serbia. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic policy that was used to expel nearly 3 million asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process, was lifted Thursday just before midnight, after three years of enforcement. Thousands of migrants have been stranded across the southern border, hoping to be processed and allowed into the United States. But many will likely be blocked as the Biden administration begins implementing what immigration rights advocates have denounced as another ban on the right to seek asylum under domestic and international law. A new policy announced this week would force the majority of asylum seekers to request refugee status in another country before reaching the U.S. or face quick deportation. The ACLU and others are suing over the rule. Another directive requires asylum applicants to make their appointments on a Customs and Border Protection smartphone app that asylum applicants say is riddled with software bugs and raises serious concerns over privacy. At the San Ysidro border crossing in California, hundreds of asylum seekers have been sleeping on the ground under trash bags and foil blankets, with many reporting they've not eaten in days. This is Hashmatullah Habibi, an asylum seeker from Afghanistan, who said Thursday he and his family have nowhere else to go. Oh, I'm just hoping and praying that today they take us in, because if they don't take us in, then our, my future and my family's future is in dark. 
because we escaped from dark place, dark side, and we came here for a better life. And if they not take us in, the situation will be more awful for us because we cannot go back and we cannot come in. So it's like dying situation. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has detained some 28,000 migrants at its border facilities in recent days. Meanwhile, the number of asylum seekers attempting to cross into the United States has topped 10,000 a day as people continue to flee violence, extreme poverty and the impacts of the climate crisis. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas Thursday warned migrants arriving at the border of even harsher consequences. If anyone arrives at our southern border after midnight tonight, they will be presumed ineligible for asylum and subject to steeper consequences for unlawful entry, including a minimum five-year ban on reentry and potential criminal prosecution. We'll go to San Diego for the latest from the U.S.-Mexico border. The former Marine who killed the beloved street performer Jordan Neely is expected to be arrested today for second-degree manslaughter. Video shows Daniel Penny held Neely in a chokehold for 15 minutes on a New York City subway train May 1st, leading to Neely's death. Penny was questioned by police shortly after the killing, but was initially released without charge. Meanwhile, protests continue in New York, demanding justice for Jordan Neely. This this is Selena Trowell, an organizer at Vocal New York. But we need accountability, and that comes from the mayor and the governor, because his death is on their hands for legitimizing that type of murder. To see our conversation about Jordan Neely, go to democracynow.org. Prospects for a ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad have faded after a lull in fighting. Israeli warplanes have resumed bombing the Gaza Strip, and Palestinians fired hundreds of long-range rockets into Israel and toward illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. A 70-year-old man was killed Thursday when a rocket crashed into the Israeli city of Rehovot. At least 31 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli assaults, including children. This is Melina al Hindi, a 39-year-old mother living in Khan Yunus. We feel unsafe, even at home. We go in and out of the house, but we are afraid. One could be going down the street when a rocket hits, never to return. We don't know what will happen to us and to our children. This situation in Gaza is not normal. It is terrifying, beyond anything you can imagine. In Sudan, warring parties have signed an agreement pledging to protect civilians and allowing for humanitarian aid to safely reach them. The Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces failed to agree to a ceasefire as talks continue in Saudi Arabia. Since fighting broke out April 15th, more than 600 people have been killed. At least 18 of those were humanitarian workers. Over 700,000 people have been internally displaced. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been released on bail on orders from the Islamabad High Court after Pakistan's Supreme Court Thursday ruled his arrest was invalid and unlawful. Khan is accused of multiple corruption charges, and his arrest has sparked widespread protests. At least eight people have been killed, some 2,000 arrested in the ensuing violence. As Khan's supporters prepared to march on the capital, police issued an emergency order banning gatherings by more than four people. 
In Guinea, protests against the military government resumed Thursday, one day after activists said at least seven people were killed and dozens injured in demonstrations across the country. The military took control over the West African nation after a 2021 coup and have been slow to transition leadership back to a democratically elected government. This is a resident of the capital, Conakry. If it continues like this, it won't be good. I don't like demonstrations. We like peace. These protests are really tiring, and we are exhausted. International travelers arriving in the United States will no longer have to show proof of vaccination against COVID-19. The requirement was lifted as the U.S. government Thursday formally ended its public health emergency in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency. COVID-19 has killed more than 1.1 million people around the United States, though that's widely believed to be a significant undercount. Globally, there have been nearly 7 million officially reported deaths. The true death toll is unknown, but the U.N. estimates at least 20 million. A judge in Virginia has struck down a federal law prohibiting the sale of handguns to 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, ruling the ban is an unconstitutional violation of the Second Amendment. The Justice Department will likely ask the judge to put the ruling on hold while it appeals the decision. The gun control advocacy group Everytown Law said Thursday's ruling will put lives at risk, adding, quote, not only are guns the leading cause of death for U.S. kids and teens, but research shows us that 18 to 20-year-olds commit gun homicides at triple the rate of adults 21 years and older, unquote. In Texas, the State House of Representatives on Thursday approved a bill banning devices that can turn handguns into fully automatic firearms. The devices, commonly called Glock switches, are already illegal under federal law. Texas lawmakers did not advance a bill that would have raised the age to purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle to 21. This came as high school students across Texas walked out of classes Thursday to demand new laws preventing gun violence. Their protests came less than a week. After the mass shooting in Allen, Texas. The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a transgender woman from Guatemala who's challenging her deportation. The justices unanimously backed Estrella Santos Zacaria, who now has another chance to argue for her right to asylum as she faces persecution back home. Santos Zacaria fled to the United States after being raped as a young teenager and threatened with death because she is transgender. And in another ruling, the Supreme Court sided with a California law that seeks to breed pigs more humanely by banning pork sales from farms where the animals are kept in confined spaces. The pork industry, which challenged the law, argued it infringed on individual state regulations where producers are based. Writing for the majority in a narrow 5-4 to four ruling, conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch said, quote, While the Constitution addresses many weighty issues, the type of pork chops California merchants may sell— is not on that list. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show at the U.S.-Mexico border, where the pandemic policy known as Title 42, which was used to expel nearly three million asylum seekers without due process, was lifted Thursday at midnight, three years after it was implemented by Trump. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced the change while warning migrants of harsher consequences if they attempt to cross into the United States. Let me be clear. The lifting of the Title 42 public health order 
does not mean our border is open. In fact, it is the contrary. Our use of our immigration enforcement authorities under Title VIII of the United States Code means tougher consequences for people who cross the border illegally. Unlike under Title 42, an individual who is removed under Title VIII is subject to at least a five-year bar on re-entry into the United States and can face criminal prosecution if they attempt to cross again. We are conducting dozens of removal flights per week and we continue to increase our removal flight capability. We are increasing our efficiency and reducing processing times at the border. As Title 42 ends, thousands of migrants have been stranded across the southern border hoping to be processed and allowed into the United States. This is a Venezuelan asylum seeker near the San Isidro border crossing in California. We got off one train to take another. The situation is challenging. All of us who are here are from Venezuela. Many migrants are in the same situation. It is difficult and complex. Every time they put more and more obstacles in our way, we will continue to move forward. Most of the thousands seeking entry to the United States will likely be blocked as the Biden administration begins its implementation of what immigration rights advocates say is another ban on the right to seek asylum under both domestic and international law. A policy announced this week would force most asylum seekers to request refugee status in another country like Mexico before reaching the U.S. or face quick deportation. The ACLU and others are suing over the rule. Another directive requires asylum applicants to make their appointments on a Customs and Border Protection smartphone app that asylum seekers say is riddled with software bugs and raises serious concerns over privacy. Meanwhile, migrant detentions at the U.S.-Mexico border are hitting record highs as Title 42 ends. Border Patrol authorities said Wednesday they detained a record 28,000 people. For more, we go to San Diego, which is near the San Isidro border crossing in California, where hundreds of asylum seekers have been sleeping on the ground under trash bags and foil blankets, with many reporting they haven't eaten in days. We're joined by Pedro Rios, director of the American Friends Service Committee's U.S.-Mexico border program. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Pedro. Can you talk about the situation um, as of midnight last night? But, of course, this has been building up. Thank you, Amy. Uh, yes, what we are seeing on the ground is that there are many people who are wanting to seek asylum, and as they cross into what is known as the enforcement zone, which is between the primary and the secondary border walls, is that they are essentially being left there, and Border Patrol is not providing, is not abiding by its national standards to ensure that they have safety, that they get food, that they have plenty of water and shelter. At this time, what we see is on a rotating basis, at least 400 people, asylum seekers with many children who have been abandoned in this location until and waiting until Border Patrol picks them up. So can you talk about how the Biden administration is dealing with this and talk about what people are telling you on the border, what they understand has changed? The Biden administration is dealing with this very poorly. Essentially, it's placing even more obstacles for people that are fleeing harm by uh, placing bans, by ensuring that people don't have a way to seek asylum, 
by forcing people to have to cross through these inhumane ways and furthermore ensuring that they are hungry, that they are thirsty. And when we speak with migrants on the ground, they tell us that they have no other options. They have tried using the CBP-1 application on their phone, and oftentimes it just doesn't work for them. There aren't many opportunities for them to present themselves at a port of entry to seek asylum. And therefore, they have been forced, especially under the application of Title 42, to seek other more dangerous ways of attempting to cross into the U.S. to turn themselves into U.S. authorities to seek asylum. Pedro, you tweeted video of a CBP readiness exercise at the San Isidro border uh, that you said was meant to normalize violence as an acceptable response to people seeking asylum. Can you explain? CBP, so Customs and Border Protection, especially under Trump and then extended under uh, President Biden, have conducted these readiness exercises where they have several hundred CBP agents that go out at the port of entry. They close many lanes and for uh, sometimes up to 45 minutes will hold these exercises. It's a show of force that use uh, sound grenades. They use mock um, grenades as well, uh, where they are meant to um, demonstrate the violence that they would use if there were a large group of people attempting to cross at that point at the port of entry. That has not occurred in many years. But what it does is it's a form of collective punishment because it makes it so violence becomes the acceptable form to respond to people that are seeking safety from harm. And it also conditions other border crossers to blame migrants, asylum seekers, from having to wait even more time at crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. This is something that we should not tolerate. It's not something that should be acceptable as a response to anyone who is seeking safety from the extreme uh, migration patterns that they have been a part of and that have, they have experienced over the course of attempting to seek safety in the, in the United States. Over the last month, Pedro, um, about 100 asylum seekers have been stuck in a kind of open prison between San Diego and Mexico. Can you lay out the human rights standards for people seeking asylum at the border and whether um, that Customs and Border Patrol is seeking these standards when they hold people there with no food, with hardly any water? Uh, community organizers like yourself out there all day and night trying to hand out food, baby supplies, charging phones, etc. Yeah, so to describe the scenario, we have people that have crossed into the U.S. in the space known as the enforcement zone. This is between the primary and the secondary border walls. These are 30 feet high walls where they are intending to present themselves to Border Patrol agents to say, I fear for my life, I want to seek asylum. Border Patrol uh, has to comply with national standards that say people need to be provided with basic food, with water, with shelter, and kept away from harm. What we are seeing on the ground at this moment is that there are anywhere between 400 to 500 asylum seekers, including many children who are kept in that location. Border Patrol has pushed people into that location. They have 
sometimes they will take their shoelaces away from them. Um, sometimes they will uh, move them into that location. And that is essentially an open air area without any way of receiving any food with the exception of civil society that has gathered there and has been providing hot meals for them. What we saw a couple of days ago, for instance, is that Border Patrol provided a single granola bar during the entire day. How is that possible to do that to children, especially those that are very little who don't know anything about what's going on at the moment? And what we are seeking is for uh, the Border Patrol to comply with these standards. Um, these are standards that were developed uh, back in 2015 after uh, months-long conversations that they need to comply with basic human rights of ensuring that people under their custody are kept in safety. We are not seeing that uh, happening at this moment at the U.S.-Mexico border in San Diego. Here in California and Texas, the Department of Public Safety and military were seen placing razor wire along the Rio Grande River in Brownsville to reinforce the border. Um, can you talk about the walls that uh, President Biden said he wouldn't be building, but what's happening there? What we are seeing is that there are several locations where President Biden is moving forward with uh, building border walls. And these border walls resemble Trump's border walls in terms of the features, such as the height, the type of material that uh, is used. But sometimes they're being uh, branded under another name. In Texas, they are being called levy walls, but they uh, mirror the same exact type of uh, prototypes that uh, President Trump at the time was proclaiming as completely unclimbable. In San Diego, for, for instance, in the Friendship Park area, he is proceeding with building two 30-foot border walls that will completely decimate the experience that families have had when they arrive at Friendship Park and are able to meet their loved ones, albeit divided by the uh, primary border wall, but at least have that experience. The visual landscape will be transformed. The binational garden that is there will be completely destroyed. And it's something that we are uh, asking President Biden to stop uh, building uh, Donald Trump's border walls. But we don't see any type of leeway in that direction, and we're hoping that civil society continues to lift their voices against these 30-foot border walls that are completely destructive. Can you explain the harsher criminal consequences for those who cross, which means profit for the private detention centers, the jails along the border? So um, for individuals um, now after uh, a post uh, Title 42 era, individuals that cross without inspection who uh, want to seek asylum uh, could be banned from doing so for five years. And this is something that we have not ever seen in terms of the decimation of what the promise of asylum was that no person should be turned away and placed in greater danger. If someone is banned from seeking asylum, it absolutely ensures that that person likely will face harm, either in their home country or in another country. There are the, uh, the, the third country bans that we are seeing, what we are now calling the Biden bans. If someone did not seek asylum in a country that they transited through before arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, 
then it's likely that the United States will prevent them and block them from seeking asylum in the United States because they did not seek asylum in a third country that they passed through. All of these anti-asylum measures are reconfiguring the concept of asylum to a point where it no longer offers the promise that it did post-World War II, where countries around the world were turning people back and people were dying as a result of not having safe harbor in other countries that should have accepted them. And can you talk about what is happening now? I mean, this is not just happening along the border. I mean, we're broadcasting from New York. Uh, Mayor Adams uh, has talked about possibility of putting migrants in a shuttered prison, uh, have already shipping people out of New York City who were brought to New York City to places like Newburgh, New York. This is happening across the country, in Chicago and other places. Um, what do you demand the Biden administration do at this point, Pedro? That's correct, Amy. And so what we are seeing is that President Biden is placing resources to further militarize the border by sending 1,500 troops to the border. Uh, we don't know what their function will be just yet, except that they're saying they will be ad having administrative tasks. But they do then add to the National Guard troops that certain states like Texas already have at the border. And this uh, uh, addition of additional uh, military troops just paints a picture that uh, migrants will not be welcomed with dignity, but in fact they will be welcomed with extreme force, that they will be turned away, and jurisdictions and other states such as New York um, should be receiving many more resources to expand the shelter services to ensure that uh, civil society has the means to transport people to place uh, asylum seekers in safe houses, at safe places, in safe shelters. We're not seeing the same commitment or dedication from the Biden administration to support those uh, border counties and other states like New York to have the resources necessary to provide the support and help that asylum seekers need at the moment. Finally, um, Trump just said uh, he would, if he were president again, he would uh, separate families again and also engage in the largest deportation of migrants in history. Um, but before him, President Obama um, was dubbed the deporter-in-chief by his own immigrant rights allies. Uh, of course, that was the Obama-Biden administration. Is Biden continuing, do you think, um, this policy that has gone from Obama to Trump? through right now to Biden? I think President Biden is, unfortunately. And I, and I think this is—it's uh, it's not uh, specific to uh, the Republican Party. Um, what I have been able to see and how I qualify this is that both the Republican and the, the Democratic Party just have never known uh, how to properly center human rights for people that are seeking safety in the United States. In fact, it becomes a, a political football where the harsher you can be on border issues, the uh, less protective you can be to migrants means that that is a way to uh, 
to project their political campaigns and their political goals, uh, undermining the premise that people should be treated with dignity and respect. And that's what we are seeing now under the new uh, Biden transit ban, under the continued construction of 30-foot border walls at Friendship Park and elsewhere, and just the rejection of treating people with dignity as they are seeking safety in the United States. Major Rios, I want to thank you for being with us, director of the American Friends Service Committee's U.S.-Mexico border program, speaking to us from San Diego, California. Coming up, a group of House Democrats are urging the Biden administration to lift sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba, which they say are driving people to leave their homes and head to the United States out of economic desperation. Stay with us. Be reasonable and demand the impossible now. Okay, saying that, be reasonable and demand the impossible now. All right, first we'll tear down the towers, bring back the neighborhoods, start at the bottom, work down to the top, house all the homeless in the great halls of Congress, ban all the guns and bust all the bad cops, and be reasonable and demand the impossible now. Demand the impossible now. Well, we free up the freeways for bike lanes and walkways. Fast tracks and tolls can all be shut down. Make systems for people. To differences equal instead of the wrong way around. Well, be reasonable and demand the impossible now. Be Reasonable, performed by Barbara Dane in Democracy Now! Studios in 2018. The legendary singer-activist turns 96 years old today. We'll be posting an extended interview with Barbara Dane on our website today. Check it out at democracynow.org. Happy birthday, Barbara Dane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As Title 42 ends, officials say they expect to see more asylum seekers from many countries, including Cuba and Venezuela. On Wednesday, a group of 21 House Democrats urged President Biden to lift sanctions on both countries, calling them failed and indiscriminate, and adding that, quote, experts widely agree that broad-based U.S. sanctions expanded to an unprecedented level by former President Donald Trump are a critical control contributing factor in the current increase in migration, unquote. Well, for more, we go to Francisco Rodriguez, a Venezuelan economist, author of a new report for the Center for Economic Policy and Research titled The Human Consequences of Economic Sanctions. Rodriguez is a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Denver's Corbell School of International Studies. He headed the Venezuelan National Assembly's Economic and Financial Advisory Office under the late president. President Hugo Chavez. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Francisco Rodriguez. Can you lay out what you feel, how these sanctions connect to the migration uh, to the United States from Venezuela and Cuba? Yes. Uh, good morning, Amy. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, effectively, uh, there is significant evidence surveyed in the report that I just authored, as well as in uh, other academic studies, uh, that uh, economic sanctions have an adverse effect, a major adverse effect on living conditions in target countries. Uh, some of the studies uh, find that the imposition of sanctions by the U.S., 
uh, leads to a decline in income per capita of up to 26%. That's the equivalent of causing a Great Depression. Another study found uh, increases or declines in life expectancy of between 1.2 and 1.4 years. That's the equivalent of the mortality effects of uh, the COVID pandemic. So, so when sanctions are imposed on a country like Venezuela and uh, like Cuba, uh, they lead to a major economic contraction. Uh, and Venezuela GDP per capita has fallen by 72%. Uh, and this has generated a massive exodus. Uh, almost 25% of the population has left, and many of them are trying to make their way uh, uh, to the border and to try, trying to enter the United States. Uh, so definitely we have economically induced migration in both of these countries, uh, and, uh, the, and, and there's a strong contribution of economic sanctions. In the case of Venezuela, uh, sanctions have targeted the oil industry. The oil industry produces 95% of the country's foreign currency revenue. So if the country can't sell oil, it can't import basic goods, it can't import food, it can't import medicines. Uh, so living conditions deteriorate markedly, uh, and that's why people want to leave. So the Biden administration has said it's willing to lift some sanctions against Venezuela in exchange for steps taken by Nicolas Maduro's government, such as not banning opposition candidates from running against him. But most of the sanctions that Biden inherited from Trump remain in place. Your response and um, and talk about how the humanitarian crisis has increased at home as well in Venezuela by these sanctions. Yeah, well, I think that that response is basically making vulnerable Venezuelans, those who are more oppressed by Maduro, pay the cost of his actions. So to say we're going to lift sanctions which are hurting Venezuelans if Maduro takes steps to uh, towards democracy, uh, well, Maduro is probably not going to take those steps, uh, and the people who are going to pay the cost are the Venezuelans and are vulnerable Venezuelans. And you've seen huge deterioration, huge increases in uh, levels of, of malnutrition, uh, of mortality, uh, both uh, both adult and child mortality in Venezuela. Uh, you uh, you've seen deteriorations, uh, a decline in wages, where wages have fallen below five dollars a month. Uh, and, and, and all of this, uh, I, I must stress, is driven by a decline in oil revenues. So Venezuela's economy shrank by 72 percent in the same period in which oil revenues declined by 93 percent. Uh, and while the cause of the decline in oil revenues, I mean, there, there, are, there are several causes. I'm, I'm not claiming in any way that sanctions are the only one, uh, but there's, there's research uh, showing that sanctions have a major effect on oil production, sanctions, the imposition of sanctions in August 2017, in January of 2019, in February of 2020, uh, is in every single instance associated with accelerations in the rate of decline of oil production. Uh, so it's clear that Venezuela doesn't have the foreign currency revenue that it needs in order to keep its economy working and feed its people. And uh, a great part of the responsibility uh, of this lies on U.S. economic sanctions. Can you also talk about how last year um, London's high court ruled against Venezuela's um, president, Maduro, in a $1 billion gold battle? What effect does that have? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it has a significant effect, but it's symptomatic of a broader problem, which is that uh, the, one of the reasons why the Venezuelan government has been unable to 
uh, deal with the pandemic and unable to deal with recession is that it doesn't have access to its international funds. And those funds, uh, it's barred from access to them, not just because of sanctions, but because of the decision of the United States and the United Kingdom to recognize the government of Juan Guaido, uh, an opposition leader who uh, claimed that he was a legitimate president of Venezuela. Uh, and, and, and the U.S. and the U.K. broke completely with diplomatic convention when they did this. Typically, what governments do is that they recognize the government that has de facto control over the territory, even if you don't like it because you realize that that's the government that you need to engage with. So the U.S. recognizes uh, many dictatorships around the world. It recognizes uh, it recognizes the government of North Korea. It recognizes the government of Iran. But it decided to recognize the Guaido government, and so did the U.K., therefore handing it over control over uh, uh, assets such as the international reserves uh, of the central bank, uh, which is what Venezuela needs to address uh, its, its economic crisis. Venezuela made a proposal to use those reserves in the Bank of England uh, to buy vaccines uh, in the midst of the COVID crisis, uh, but uh, that was rejected because the court is trying to clarify whether uh, well, what will be the results, of, the results of that suit, which is a, a lawsuit between the central bank board that was appointed by the Maduro government and an alternate central bank board that was uh, appointed by the Guaido government. We have a similar problem in the International Monetary Fund. Venezuela did not have access to the funds to fight the COVID emergency uh, that were created by the issuance of special drawing rights at the International Monetary Fund, and that's because the U.S. has blocked recognition uh, of the government that has control of the territory, which is the Maduro government. Uh, it's insisted that, uh, that, that the legitimate government, even though the Guaido government has already been dissolved, it's still insisting that the Maduro government not have access to the resources that the IMF approved for all countries to be able to fight the pandemic. So the U.S. spent 25 percent of GDP in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, Latin America spent less than 5 percent because it didn't have access uh, to the same resources. Venezuela was able to spend less than 1 percent of its GDP uh, because it was unable to tap the resources that the international community had created and allocated to, uh, to deal with this emergency. Um, we don't have much time left, but your report also not only looks at sanctions against Venezuela, against Cuba, but Syria and what that meant, especially with the earthquake that just hit. Uh, yes, uh, the, the results surveys 32 studies, uh, of which 30 find negative, consistent effects uh, of sanctions on indications, on indicators ranging from GDP per capita uh, uh, to mortality, life expectancy, uh, living conditions in general. Uh, in the case of Syria, uh, we have seen also very uh, uh, significant negative effects. And in fact, sanctions have interfered uh, with earthquake relief. Earlier in the year, uh, GoFundMe actually suspended the um, any attempts, any accounts requesting uh, the raising of funds for Syria earthquake relief. Um, and that was as a response. It's a phenomenon known as overcompliance. Uh, it's not the U.S. claims that there are humanitarian exceptions and it puts humanitarian exceptions uh, in the regulations that it publishes. But the reality is that the exceptions are so vague and so hard to follow that most financial institutions say we're not going to take the risk of getting into trouble and we're not going to process transactions for countries uh, like Syria. Uh, and, and, and therefore, you see that, and you see this systematically across the board, uh, the humanitarian exceptions 
are, are not uh, effective. And in the case of uh, Iran, for example, you found that uh, the medicines that uh, were not available in, uh, in Iran during the periods of sanctions, uh, out of 73 medicines, 70 of them were in the OFAC exemptions list. But it's still the case that no bank would process the transactions, given that the country was a, a sanctioned country. So, so, so sanctions uh, impede the uh, access uh, to funds that are necessary to uh, cover humanitarian aid in cases of emergency relief, uh, such as those of uh, the Syria earthquake. Francisco Rodriguez, want to thank you for that very quick analysis of the effect of sanctions uh, from Venezuela to Syria. Um, Venezuelan economist, um, uh, thank you so much for being with us from the University of Denver, speaking to us from Aurora. Um, he headed the National Assembly's Economic and Financial Advisory Office uh, under Venezuela's late President Hugo Chavez. His new report for the Center for Economic Policy and Research is titled The Human Consequences of Economic Sanctions. Coming up, Pakistan's former prime minister, Imran Khan, has been freed after his arrest sparked mass protests and a number of deaths. Stay with us. Support the Second Amendment in front of second graders. They get shot, turning red over, playing hot potato. These grown men won't enter rooms, say we'll stop them later. Can stop the data, no matter what the new cases. Identifying by DNA and shoelaces. He say we move forward, backwards two paces. Governors in the school faces with all these young kids suffering and making new statements. Lobbying for law changes, getting hounded and accused. Now, who really is abused? Indoctrinated to stop debating. Only right and wrong answers if you ask the Santas. Watch the fascists on campus, doesn't like the colors splashed on campus. Got the mask on, managed to avoid lung damage, but it won't block a gunshot. Can't drink a beer, but your son's got a gun cock. Don't talk to me about a knife fight when 25 are getting dumped off in a matter of seconds. Yet we can't ban a bump stock of one drop of blood's never bled from your family. Every nation knows it's America's calamity. Make money, money, making lots of guns. Make money, money, making lots of guns. Shaking all you down, taking lots of funds. Tons of Guns 23 by Darius Rhodes and Reason. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Pakistan. Earlier today, the Islamabad High Court granted bail for two weeks to former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, whose arrest earlier this week sparked mass protests. On Tuesday, paramilitary forces arrested Khan on corruption charges. But then on Thursday, Pakistan's Supreme Court ruled his arrest was invalid and unlawful. Khan had served as Pakistan's prime minister from 2018 to 2022, when he was ousted from office in what he described as a, quote, U.S.-backed regime change plot backed by his opposition. He's now blamed the military. Supporters of his political party, the PTI, say the latest charges are politically motivated and part of a broader campaign to silence Khan. In an attempt to quell the protests, Pakistan's police issued an emergency order earlier today to ban gatherings in Islamabad. Pakistan has also suspended mobile broadband and blocked access to social media apps, disrupting the lives of millions. Meanwhile, human rights groups accuse Pakistani forces of using excessive force on supporters of Imran Khan, who've taken to the streets in recent days. At least 10 protesters have been killed. Nearly 3,000 Khan supporters have been arrested. We're joined now by Mohammed Hanif. He's an award 
award-winning writer and journalist based in Karachi. He's a former editor of the BBC Urdu service in London, where he's joining us from today. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Mohammed Hanif. It's great to have you with us. Explain what's happening. Why was Imran Khan arrested, and now why was he released? I think they've been uh, trying to arrest Imran Khan for uh, quite a few months now. Uh, the main purpose is uh, quite obvious. Uh, elections are due, and they want to keep him uh, out of the electoral race. Either they want to disqualify him, or they want to put him behind uh, bars. Uh, that seems to be the obvious uh, purpose, because he was just uh, uh, thrown out of the government a year ago. And since then, he has been on a war path. And uh, that's not new. All, almost every single prime minister in Pakistan's history at some point has fallen out uh, with the army, which is considered the all-powerful in Pakistan. Uh, but what Imran Khan has managed to do is that he's managed to polarize what's called establishment in Pakistan, which is uh, the higher judiciary and uh, military uh, itself. Uh, so uh, people were hoping that uh, after they after they put him behind bars, they'll be managed to uh, throw away the key, and that's where he will stay. Uh, but he was there uh, under arrest for two days, and then Supreme Court, the Chief Justice himself, called him, uh, said, I'm very happy to see you. Uh, then from a, from a lockup, uh, put him into a, a state guest house, uh, asked him to uh, basically invite his friends over and have an easy night's sleep. And then today he appeared in the court again, and uh, he was granted bail. So now he's a free uh, man to move. So basically what uh, Imran Khan has managed to achieve is, uh, which no other politician has, I think, in the past, is that he's managed to polarize the establishment uh, itself. So they don't quite know what to do with him because they put him behind the bars. And as Imran Khan is born, if you arrest me, the country will burn. And the country did burn. And uh, now they've uh, released him. But there are dozens and dozens of cases uh, against him, some very flimsy, some substantial. And uh, I think they will probably go after him again. He seems to be extremely popular throughout Pakistan. Can you explain who his supporters are and just give us the overall political landscape? Um, why at this point they arrested him? Uh we keep hearing that he is extremely popular. And the interesting thing is that he's popular uh, amongst people who are basically used to be a bit apolitical. In every democracy, there's a chunk of people who actually hate politics. Uh, so there were lots of uh, uh, haters in Pakistan who did not like the way things were going. And they're usually uh, middle class people, a lot of them. Uh, uh, they're people... Lots of women who were politically disengaged, lots of young people uh, who were not interested in politics or just hated the idea of uh, these old politicians who've been running the country. These were also the same people who loved the army. And uh, when Imran Khan came into power, uh, it was a quite well-known fact uh, that he was groomed by the army. He was supported by the army while he was in power. Uh, he said repeatedly uh, that he and army, they were on one page. In fact, uh, he's uh, basically confessed that uh, he was a he was a he was a puppet uh, for the army, that everything that he did while he was in power, he did because army told him to do so. 
but when he was uh, thrown out of power uh, after a no confidence uh, vote uh, he went on a war path so all this uh, all these people who were supporting him and supporting the army now they have turned against the army so look at it like a lovers quarrel and those quarrels can be very very bitter and uh, sometimes very violent so that's why uh, we saw what we saw in lahore uh, the army commander who basically controls uh, 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 lahore and in a way is kind of you know sort of probably more powerful uh, than any politician in lahore uh, his uh, house was uh, ransacked uh, set on fire uh, it was uh, uh, looted uh, so army is probably just beginning to realize uh, that they have created something that they cannot control anymore imran khan described the coup that replaced him as a us backed regime change but then seemed to shift and blame the pakistani military can you explain the dynamic there a uh, fun fact about imran khan is that he can say something today and he can say it completely opposite tomorrow and uh, his supporters would still uh, love him so he is a man that you cannot accuse of uh, that he is contradicting himself uh, because that is not his weakness that's almost his strength so when he was removed he did say that it was a us backed conspiracy uh, then he changed his mind uh, very many times uh, he then he said that it was pakistani generals who were uh traitors who betrayed him and betrayed the country uh he he's called them all kinds of uh, names uh and since then we keep hearing you guys probably know this better that he's been hiring uh, lobbyists uh, in washington uh, dc to kind of uh, to to smooth things over uh, with the united states uh, establishment i don't even know if they're interested or not uh but as a pakistani one thing that i found a bit scary in the last few weeks is that there's this dude called uh, zalme khalil zad is i think his name who kind of uh, first tried to liberate uh, iraq and then afghanistan and we both know uh, what happened there so was the US ambassador to afghanistan yes he was so and then before i think he was involved uh, somehow in iraq as well so every time we hear his name uh we hear mass murder basically of a uh, world class so he's somebody who's been campaigning on his behalf i have no idea whether he's a paid lobbyist or just because he's out of job and he's looking for another cause uh, another country to save so i would only as a citizen say that uh, god save pakistan from zalme khalil zad and likes of him do you fear a military takeover in pakistan now or would you say that's already happened I think Pakistan is in such a big economic mess right now. I mean, till last month and even now people are standing in long queues just to just to purchase uh, you know, flour for to make their bread and and things are so bad that they haven't been so bad in a long time. And army would have moved in if uh, they knew that they could handle the country economically. and which they which which they can't uh, things are as desperate as as they can be so they kind of uh, they uh, they are trying to run things uh, but it seems that they can't uh, anymore and uh, they resort to brute force uh, which they have done in the past uh, uh, i think we will get into probably a much bigger mess than we are in right now 
And I think probably army fears that too. So I don't think there will be any direct uh, takeover by the army. Uh, they will try to do what they've been doing in the past. They'll, they'll stay, they'll stay on the sidelines and they will try to uh, run things. But increasingly, it seems that they're not uh, able to do what they've been able to do in the past. Mohammed Hanif, we want to thank you for being with us. Award-winning Pakistani writer and journalist based in Karachi, former editor of the BBC Urdu Service in London, speaking to us from London. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. We end today's show in Serbia, which is reeling from a pair of mass shootings that left 17 people dead. On May 3rd, a 13-year-old boy, a student, went on a rampage at a school in the capital, Belgrade, killing eight students and a school guard. It was Serbia's first mass school shooting. The following day, a 21-year-old Serbian man shot dead eight people um, nearby. The shooting shocked the country and led to quick calls for sweeping gun control measures. And Serbia's President Aleksandr Vucic vowed to completely disarm the country. More than 6,000 unregistered guns and weapons have already been turned in after the government announced a month-long amnesty on illegal weapons. Nearly 300,000 rounds of ammunition have also been surrendered. We go now to the Serbian journalist uh, Liliana Smalovic. Uh, she is a former editor of Politica, the oldest daily newspaper in the Balkans, also um, is a columnist for uh, Belgrade Political Weekly magazine. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Liliana. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you first lay out what happened and then the country's response, the population? In fact, there's about to be yet another anti-gun mass mobilization in Belgrade uh, today. You know, their sense of security has been taken away completely. Uh, so what they're thinking now is, is my child safe at school? This other mass murder happened in a sleepy little uh, suburb of Belgrade, they're wondering, can we still meet up late with neighbors and walk home afterwards? So there's, there's this shock and surprise and something that's never happened before that takes. Looks like we, Liliana was frozen in her, um, in her Skype, uh, uh, last week after 17 people were killed in the two mass shootings, including eight children, tens of thousands of people joined protests against gun violence in Belgrade, demanding top government officials resign. Uh, this is a protester. It is tragic that so many kids killed by their peers were buried in a short period of time. This is a low point. We are already used to what happens in Texas, but there, weapons are openly purchased. And here, where do they get the firearms? It is a disaster. Liliana Smilovich, if you could respond to what he's saying. We're, we're still having trouble with uh, getting Liliana. This is the Serbian president, Aleksandr Vucic, speaking last week at a news conference in Belgrade after both mass shootings. 
Svi ljudi koji imaju oružje to oko 400. Everyone who has a weapon and that's around 400,000 individuals and I'm not talking about hunting weapons will have to go through revision and after there won't be more than 30,000 to 40,000 of them. We'll practically conduct a complete disarmament of Serbia. For owning an illegal weapon, penalties will be much more severe, almost double. Of course, even that will not be enough for the small number of weapons that will remain. For hunters, who are usually more disciplined, and for everyone else, we will conduct biannual and annual exams of gun owners, including medical, psychiatric, and psychological evaluations. If deemed necessary by the authorities, a substance use test will be conducted within 48 hours. Let's see if we have Liliana Smilovic back. And if we do, it seems like Serbia is mobilizing against gun violence much faster than the United States. You've had two mass shootings. We have, on average, at least one a day in the United States. Explain what's happening. Well, what's happening is that we have a, a political hegemon in power. He has been in power for over 10 years. He has a majority in parliament. He's a hands-on president. He's also the president of the ruling party. So when he promises something, when he says he's going to move on something, he moves on it and people know that he can deliver. So the protests, uh, the mass opposition protests that we've had a couple of days ago, and we're expecting another major protest tonight, these protests are not so much against his measures. People, by and large, approve the measures that the president has announced. People are surrendering their weapons en masse. He just announced today that 9,000 weapons were surrendered, which is more than had happened in four previous campaigns of the sort, where people were asked to turn in their unregistered weapons and there would be no consequences if they do. But the protests are really the protests against this a long-serving president who has who is being accused of being a dictator and he truly politically is omnipotent so uh, the opposition sees this crisis of people's sense of security as a good opportunity to try to dislodge or destabilize the government and extort some important political concessions they want uh, several key people Uh, in the government that are known as personal choices of the president to be fired. They want two of the most popular political stations to lose their broadcasting licenses, at least for national frequencies and only to remain cable companies. So they have huge demands and they figured that this is a good moment to try to win some concessions from a very strong and stable, otherwise stable government. You are, to say the least, a global observer. You've seen what's happened in the United States, and then you see what's happening in Serbia. How are the mass shootings in the United States perceived from there um, and this immediate uh, crackdown on guns, uh, especially illegal guns on the streets of Serbia, um, like we haven't seen in the United States uh, ever? Where we are a society that's just as deeply polarized politically as the United States. So we used to look at the United States and say, oh, that happens there because they have all those weapons and they have these, you know, open carry and all this. 
But we also felt that we were better and that this kind of thing could not happen here. And this is, and immediately there were political accusations. A government minister who was forced to resign said, this is what comes from your so-called Western values. Well, the opposition responded, no, this is what comes from Putinism, from being pro-Russian. So that was uh, the debate. But by and large, people approve of restrictive measures, and they cannot understand that the United States is unable to do anything about their problem. So people are saying, okay, this has not been imported from the United States. We are simply part of the big world. And these are things that happen in that outer world. And some things that are happening in this society have a lot to do with what's happening in other more developed societies, the societies that we are aspiring well, Liliana Smilovic, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We thank you so much for being with us, Serbian journalists joining us from Belgrade, Serbia, where two mass shootings took place one day after another, one perpetrated by a 13-year-old student who gunned down his classmates and a guard in the school. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Aaron Dooley. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Felstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astujo, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive directors, Julie Crosby, our director, Becca Staley.